Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And today we are kicking off the first of our episodes on our cytopenia series. So cytopenias are, at least guys, so far I think pretty common. So I'm, I'm kind of excited to kind of share with you some of the things that I've seen and heard on consults so far this year, but I do have a lot to learn. So I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Yeah, I feel like most, I mean, I don't know, I, I'm just guessing here, maybe 80, 90% of the consults we get are some sort of cell line abnormality, which makes sense in benign hematology, right? It's either cell line abnormalities or, or clots or something. So it makes a lot of sense, but it's really common things that, that's really important to have a good framework to approach because it can get complicated and it can get daunting as these differentials are very broad. That's right. And, you know, I think that of all of the cytopenias, it, it, you know, anemia is obviously pretty common, but I think we probably get consulted on thrombocytopenia the most. I don't know if that's, you know, there's no data to support that, but like anecdotally, uh, that seems to be what I'm seeing. And so it's only appropriate then that we give our listeners a taste of thrombocytopenia on today's episode, if that sounds good to you all. Sounds great to me. Before we get into the episode, I was just curious, let's just take a step back, chill out before we get into this this topic. I was wondering what you guys are watching on TV right now. Dan, you want to go first? Ah, sure. Um, well, it's not... So I watch it on my TV, but, you know, other than football and basketball, I'm not watching a lot of stuff like in live anymore. Probably my most consumed right now is embarrassingly wine videos. Videos, um... <laughs> that are intended I think, as lectures to prepare for like the WSET levels one through four. Only Dan. Uh, oh, I promise man. I'm not a jerk. I promise. I, <laughs> I just like wine. Well, uh, unlike Dan, I'm watching something a little more classier as, as we've mentioned in a previous episode, Survivor. Right now, I think we're on season 33 or 34. I can't remember exactly which Have one. Have really been that many? Uh, oh, dude, there's like 41 or something right now. <laughs> Excellent show. But in the in the most recent tribal council, there was uh, an outing of one of the contestants who was actually transgender. And it was it was really messed up, but actually it was a beautiful piece of television the way that the host responded, the way the contestants responded. So Google it. It's it's really it, it was really cool to watch actually. I was I was actually very was very touched by it. So Survivor, great show. It's growing along with us. The times are changing, guys. People are changing. I feel like my choice of television is very different than these two. Um, I guess I just, uh, <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but um, I just finished uh, Selling Sunset not too long ago. Um, Excellent show. So Selling Sunset, and now I was actually, it was highly recommended that I consider watching The Good Place, so um, I'm now watching The Good Place. Uh, and then prior to that, though, I did finish Money Heist. I finally caught up on that, so... Um, in my lack of free time, I somehow managed to find some time to watch this television as well. But it's been good. Um, so Money Heist is actually a good show? Money Heist is a fantastic show. Absolutely. I, I just haven't been able to get over the title. It just seems like they, that was the, the cutting room floor title and, and they just <laughs> never changed it. 
seems so ridiculous. La Casa de Papel is the is the Spanish name that just sounds so much better. It's, that's so much. That's so, so much better. better. So much. That's way better. better. Way better. Um, all right, guys. Well, let's not keep our listeners waiting any longer. Let's get into this episode of Thromosetta Pina. Hey guys, uh, so the other night I was on call and I got a page about an interesting case that I wanted to run by you all. You you think you got some time to talk about a new case of thrombocytopenia? That's my favorite thing to talk about as a benign oh, hematology fellow. Oh, yeah. Always got time to playlist. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Well, well then, we are in for a great smooth ride, I'm sure. I have a, a case of a 55-year-old gentleman that I was consulted about who was in the emergency room, actually, for a, a case of a new-onset thrombocytopenia. Um, so a little bit of his context. Uh, here's what I gathered in the sign-out. So he's a 55-year-old gentleman, Mr. PK. He actually came into the hospital with several days of fevers, chills, uh, a productive cough. And so they had done a chest x-ray as part of his workup, and they had noted an infiltrate. And so there was a concern for pneumonia. And so, but given his symptoms, he had, you know, a CBC and a, and a, a BMP that was performed. And on the CBC, they had some interesting findings. So his hemoglobin was 14.2. His white count was 8,000. And he had a platelet count of 65,000. I was told that his BMP was unremarkable. And so really the question for me was, what do we do about this thrombocytopenia, this 65,000 value for platelets? So I was looking through the chart and, you know, interestingly, this patient had just seen his PCP just about a week ago uh, as part of a a routine physical. And thankfully for us, uh, the PCP had done a CBC and a BMP at that time. And so on those labs, so a week ago, his platelet count was 180,000. So now within a week, we have this guy that went from 180,000 to 65,000. And so, you know, my question to you all is, what do we do in a situation like this? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. And and just so happens to be that in this case that we have here, that we had labs last week, which doesn't happen all the time in real life, unfortunately, but it highlights the point that chronicity is super important figuring out exactly how long it took for this platelet count to drop. The the first thing in the approach to thrombocytopenia is defining how severe the thrombocytopenia is. The way that I think about this in my head is if the platelet count is less than 50, patients at high risk for bleeding, if you do any procedures, if it's less than 20,000, they're at risk for spontaneous bleeding. So when you're in that range of less than 50, less than 20, I start to really really, really say, hey, let's prioritize this in our differential diagnosis and figuring out what's going on. If it's more moderate, above 50,000 to 100,000, you probably have a little bit more time. But again, this guy's platelet counts went from 180,000 to 65,000 relatively quickly, which makes me nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. so a quick drop makes me nervous. If somebody's hanging around 90,000, then I'm not as worried about it. It takes time to figure out that clinical judgment. But I'd say golden rule of thumb, if the platelet count's less than 50, you better start thinking about that in your differential diagnosis. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, you know, as we've always been taught in residency, I'm sure as is in this case, the history is going to be extremely important. So I was curious to know what kinds of things I should be asking about in my history when I see these patients for the first time. Yeah. You know, obviously you're going to tailor your, your questioning, your interview to, to those first three things that we talked about, which is severity of thrombocytopenia, the clinical context that you're in, which is the ED in this case, and uh, sort of how fast it developed. But generally speaking, one of the most important things to nail down right away is, is the patient having symptoms from this abnormality? 
are are they having signs of increased propensity towards bleeding? Are they having easy bruising, oozing at the gums with brushing their teeth, more heavy menses? These are the type of things that you want to screen for. And kind of what you ask, again, depends on how long this abnormality has been present. Additionally, you may want to ask about rashes, uh, just because a lot of patients won't recognize that a petechial rash is a form of bleeding, just, you know, tiny little bleeds happening under the skin. So that can be important to suss out too. And, you know, going along with that, Dan, with the rash idea, the you know, tick-borne illnesses, any infectious symptoms is important to screen for. So not saying that ticks cause thrombocytopenia, but we see that. At our Rouleau University, we're by a forest and there's lots of ticks around. So, you know, you always got to think about that. So rashes are important for the petechial rash. Also viral exanthems, things like that, because infections are really important to rule out. So any of those infectious symptoms are important. Thinking about people who might be doing drugs or drinking alcohol, stuff like that, herbal supplements, over-the-counter meds, so any meds or toxins, again, important to screen for, and really get the chronicity on when when are they taking their meds. And just to drive a point home, the social history can be so important when you're when you're thinking about, hey, are you a recreational drug user? What are you doing? Because that that can really help you change your differential when you think about thrombocytopenia. And, you know, you don't have to rely mm-hmm. on just talking with the patient or their family to, to get a full med history, especially if you have the luxury of having a patient who's been admitted to the hospital for a few days. You have a much more well-documented and definitive record of when they received what meds. And, mm-hmm. you know, getting towards infectious symptoms, like Vivek was referencing, if you had a patient that has a lot of general constitutional symptoms, including things like night sweats, weight loss, uh, you know, other B symptoms, and thrombocytopenia in that context, in addition to infection, you got to be wondering about malignancy. And that could be both primary marrow malignancy, uh, like a blood cancer, or uh, metastatic malignancy affecting the bone marrow. That's the big one that Dan mentioned, is that you you don't want to miss that. It's it's probably the least common cause of thrombocytopenia, but you really just don't want to miss it. And you know, going along the other thing Dan said that I thought was beautiful was that location of the patient's important. I'd say, what, 60% of our consults is thrombocytopenia in the ICU. And depending on where they are, it's kind of like there's a different differential diagnosis depending on which location the patient's in. And somebody in the ICU, the most common thing is that, hey, it's something we did to that patient or they're really sick and their bone marrow is not working. So thinking about that location mm-hmm. can also help you hone in your differential. And, you know, by contrast, in the outpatient setting, you might be thinking about something like a a non-hematologic issue causing this. Uh, Like we talked about meds and toxins, those are are certainly common reasons, but sort of long-term toxic exposure in those sequelae, things like cirrhosis of the liver, and that's a common cause of of thrombocytopenia as well. Uh, I don't know if in your clinic that's something that you find you diagnose fairly frequently when, when you get these mild thrombocytopenia cases. Got it. Okay. Well, and I think you guys are alluding to this already, but it sounds like there's a pretty extensive differential that we need to be considering in our patients. And so I was wondering if any of you have any great tips or tricks to kind of create a broad differential for a patient with new onset thrombocytopenia, how to ensure that you're keeping this whole thing straight and you're not missing any of these important causative factors. Yeah, I really like Vivek's framework for this. He has a, he has a pretty cool one that analogizes to a problem that we're all very familiar with from our internal medicine training. Vivek, share with yeah, us. Sh- share the knowledge, spread the wealth, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. But but really, Dan the man is the one who taught me everything I know, right? So this is this is just all. <laughs> oh, we're in trouble. This is all from Dan. <laughs> <laughs> the The way that I I like to think about this is similar to an AKI because I. Th- 
the in my head, the easiest thing in internal medicine was the differential diagnosis for an AKI because it was pre-renal, intra-renal, post-renal, and I could easily bucket that into my head. So there's a way I think about that for thrombocytopenia, and it's pre-bone marrow, intra-bone marrow, and post-bone marrow causes of low platelets. When we think about the kidneys, the most common cause of an AKI for somebody rolling through the door in the hospital is a pre-renal AKI. They need fluids to get better. It's the same thing when we're thinking about low platelets. The most common causes of low platelets are pre-bone marrow issues. What I mean by that is it's things that are outside the bone marrow but affect the functioning of the bone marrow, which is the factory for your platelets, right? Bone marrow is factory for your blood cells. So things like infections can suppress the bone marrow, so that's a pre-bone marrow cause. Medications can cause suppression of the bone marrow, and that's another example of a a pre-bone marrow cause of low platelets. And lastly, toxins, things like alcohol, drug use, those things can also suppress the bone marrow. Less likely are building blocks to help you make platelets, and those are nutritional deficiencies. So if you have low nutritional issues, B12 folate really low, then you might have issues making platelets and have a thrombocytopenia. But the big things to remember are infections, medications, toxins. Less likely but possible nutritional deficiencies, and that's your pre-bone marrow. So if you're going to remember anything for any low blood count, infections, medications, toxins. Moving on to- Infections, meds, toxins. In, got yeah, it. infections, meds, toxins. You got to know that. Really, any side opinion. He's right. I mean, I mean, with, with Roanoke, we have to tell this guy every day, you know, just, just no, keep on reminding It's him. very true. It's very <laughs> it's true. It's a big problem. It's a big problem. <laughs> <laughs> so for intra bone marrow causes, this is the least likely thing. It's stuff that's inside the bone marrow, and it means that, hey, we're going to do a bone marrow biopsy. It's rare that you see hematologists jump in and say, we need to do a bone marrow biopsy right now for low platelets. So things inside the bone marrow, cancer in the bone marrow, whether it's a leukemia, a lymphoma, a solid tumor cancer, whatever, a cancer in the bone marrow. And much less likely are things like aplastic anemia, other bone marrow failure syndromes. We're not going to get into the details of those because really at that point, it's being, you know, you've ruled out all of this other stuff and you're actually doing a bone marrow biopsy. But that's the least likely cause is that the factory itself is broken. Then we have post bone marrow. So it means you've made the platelets and they've left the bone marrow, and now for some reason, they're getting low. And so things that, in in this situation for post-bone marrow, we have consumption. So platelets can get consumed in multiple different ways. One way is if somebody has uh, cardiac devices. So if somebody has a cabbage, somebody's hooked up to ECMO, somebody's hooked up to CRRT and dialysis, that can eat up some of your platelets, and you can have some thrombocytopenia from that. Consumption in the form of DIC, we all learn about DIC in medical school. And what I always thought, and even as when I was an intern, was that in order to have DIC, you have to have a really low fibrinogen and your INR has to be like four, but that's just not the case. You can have low levels of DIC with platelet consumption without a severe coagulopathy. So consuming on any cabbages, cardiac devices, things like that, you can have consumption in the form of DIC. You can have consumption in the form of somebody's bleeding, like they just had a big surgery and you're consuming your platelets to stop the bleeding. So postoperatively, you get lots of platelet consumption because you just cut somebody open and you needed to use those platelets. So you can see a drop in the platelets and you're also giving them a lot of fluids and surgery so you can dilute down the platelets. But that's why you see thrombocytopenia post-op is you're consuming your platelets. So consumption in the form of DIC, consumption in the form of other cardiac devices, consumption in the form of having a surgery. And lastly, you can have consumption in the form of something like TTP 
or other thrombotic microangiopathies. And those are fancy words for saying that for some reason you're making blood clots in the very small blood vessels in your body. And there's a lot of reasons that why that can happen, but just knowing that you're consuming by making small blood clots, uh, and oftentimes that's associated with some sort of a kidney injury, is the thing to remember for these thrombotic microangiopathies or something like a TTP. So that's where our consumption comes in. Another big thing, so the platelets have left the bone marrow, they're not being consumed, but they're being sequestered in the spleen. So splenomegaly is incredibly common. And Dan pointed out, and Kathy was talking about how, hey, cirrhotics, sometimes you diagnose them with thrombocytopenia because the spleen can hold up to about 90% of your blood volume at one time. So a ton of your platelets can just be shuttled into the spleen. And so a large spleen, you can have pretty severe thrombocytopenia with that. Cirrhosis also, you have a decreased production of platelets for other reasons. But in my head, I just remember that cirrhosis, cirrhotics have big spleens. Spleens consume platelets. So any cause of splenomegaly can cause your platelets to decrease. Yeah, and cirrhosis is like the prototypical demonstration of that physiology too, right? I mean, it's it, the, the reason it gets big is because it's just portal hypertension. It's just an incidental thing that happens. But it's still, because it's big, the platelets are getting soaked up faster. I think that's remarkable. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's absolutely crazy. And then the last thing is antibody-mediated process. So antibody-mediated processes in my head are things like HIT, so heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, where your body's making antibody for some reason. Another antibody process is like ITP. ITP is a diagnosis of exclusion, but it's important to think about, you know, hey, is my own immune system killing these platelets for some reason? And those are two of the most important antibody-mediated causes. And then something that's not real thrombocytopenia that you always have to consider is, are the platelets clumped? And that's that's the, the last thing. So we have pre-bone marrow, infections, meds, toxins, less likely nutritional deficiencies, but she'll, still should consider, meaning you're not you're, the factory itself isn't, isn't going to work if you have these pre-bone marrow problems. Intra-bone marrow, meaning the factory is broken, very rare. Cancers, bone marrow failures, aplastic anemia, that's the last thing you're thinking about when you're going, and then at that point you're doing a bone marrow biopsy. And these post-bone marrow processes, the most broad category, but anything that can consume your platelets, bleeding, devices, DIC, you don't have to have a severe coagulopathy, post-operatively are big, big causes of consumption of your platelets, a huge spleen, so splenic sequestration of splenomegaly, and then antibody-mediated things like your like ITP or HIT are, are the ways that I kind of think about thrombocytopenia. Well, so so you know now that we have this extensive differential, you know I I'd imagine that there are certain steps that we should be taking to quickly work up a situation like this, so we can quickly triage whether or not we need to be worrying about more of a a post bone marrow process, ruling out those things up front. Because it sounds like the pre-bone marrow and intra-bone marrow times, although we definitely need to act on it, we have a little bit of time on our hands before we can, uh, we, we need to get to that. But it sounds like all the really scary stuff is in the post-bone marrow setting. So, you know, do you guys have a, a good roadmap of the things that we should be ordering, lab tests that we should be doing, any imaging that we need to do? I'm curious to hear your thoughts. The person to best tell us this is, is Dan Hausrath, our the guy who taught me everything I know. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fact. It's a fact. I start fellowship. I'm like, thrombocytopenia, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's DIC. I don't, I don't know what's going on here. And so 
dance dance a guy. You must have been delirious, but it, and that's understandable. <laughs> Fellowship can do this to you. Yeah, I mean, it's like we talked about. It's a super common reason to get consulted in the hospital, and as you heard from that differential, practically anything in medicine seems to be able to cause it. But over the course of my training to date, I've settled on a fairly standardized approach to how I I go about working these consults up. I, I almost always start by looking at the smear. I happen to have a particular affinity to smear review. So, you know, that that is probably part of my influence. It's <laughs> only Dan. <laughs> That's how I found the microscope in the hospital was from Dan. Oh, yeah. Right. I have one at my desk now. That's like <laughs> the thing that makes me the happiest when I go into work. It's like seeing that microscope sitting there at my desk just ready for me, just in case. Um, only Dan. <laughs> but in any event, when you're, when you're looking at that smear, the reason I, I'm so enthusiastic about reviewing it is because that really helps you triage your concern for some of these more concerning etiologies, things like these consumptive processes, the TMAs. Do, do you know? Do you all know what to look for on a smear if we're worried about a TMA? Like, what, what are you going to look for? Oh, I think the thing we always learned about are schistocytes for sure. So I'm going to go with that. Schistocytes, absolutely. And schistocytes are basically just red blood cells that have been sheared on something. In the case of a thrombotic microangiopathy, it's that there are so many tiny little clots forming in the microvasculature that the red blood cells, as they're passing by, just get sheared off on these clots. And so uh, along with that, you will see the body trying to respond to that red blood cell destruction with increased reticulocytosis or polychromasia. And then you may see some microspherocytes too, which are just like tiny little red cell remnants. And of course, thrombocytopenia, which will be pretty obvious when you're looking around. Platelets are among the most abundant things on this mirror. So when they're absent, it's like, oh yeah, that, that's the thing that, that's usually there that I'm not seeing. And you can in also, my simple head, yeah? the one thing I want to say in my simple head is platelets on a smear, little, little purple dots. Yeah. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> the little purple Perfect. dots on the smear. Got it. Unless you got gray, gray platelet syndrome, right? Uh, we, we won't cover yeah, that yeah. one here. Um, the other thing you can see on these smears is uh, platelet clumping, like that in vitro lab artifact can become pretty obvious. If you're looking around, particularly around the edges of the smear, you may see some uh, you know big clusters of platelets all hanging out together. And there's some tests you can order to try and break those platelets up in the tube or prevent them from clumping to sort of decrease the influence of that artifact as well. This is things like ordering a citrated platelet count or a platelet count in an ACD yellow top tube. But after you've reviewed that smear and, you know, figured out whether or not you're really worried about a TMA or thrombotic microangiopathy, you can move on to sort of your more targeted testing. If you went into this with a pretty high suspicion of uh, a diagnosis like TTP, and stay tuned, we're going to have a separate podcast entirely on TTP. It's a super important condition in benign heme. If you're really worried about that, it's important to send off an Adam TS13 activity level straight away. It's something you can't go back and, and get later after you've already started treatment. And it's very important for securing that diagnosis. Again, we'll cover what that is in our separate episode on TTP, but definitely something you want to get sent off if you have high clinical suspicion. If the clinical context is right and, you know, you have a, a 4T score suggestive of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, sending off a hit antibody early on is important, too. It, it, the lab runs those usually batched either once a day or a few times a week, so it can be important to get that sent off sooner rather than later. Other basic labs, things like COAG and APTT, PT, INR, and a fibrinogen level can be important if you're trying to inform your suspicion about DIC. Again, these are sort of the, the big, really worrisome etiologies. After you've ruled out some of those more worrisome things, you can get into testing for some of these pre-bone marrow conditions. That involves things like hepatitis B and C serologies, HIV testing, and testing for maybe some more esoteric viruses, things like EBV, CMV, 
so that's that's usually where I where I start. You guys, did I miss anything? Uh, what else do you like to send? Do, do you all find that there's any use in abdominal imaging when you're going about working these patients up, looking for that splenomegaly? The abdominal ultrasound, you know, it's not something we we think about a lot, but it can't it can be useful in kind of helping us triage this differential and always looking at old imaging too. Sometimes they don't even comment on the spleen, and just making sure that you review an old CT if they had a CT six months ago or something like that, and it. see if they've got a big spleen or a cirrhotic liver. There's been a number of times that, that I know Dan has caught this because he always starts uh, talking about it in the fellows room in, in very nice ways. Oh, I'm sure it's very nice. No, I, I, the the folks who audit our like EHR activity must think I'm the biggest weirdo. I, I've measured so many spleens on old CTs. Got it. Okay. So that's, that's certainly helpful. And I, you know, I think that Dan, I, I really like the way that you laid out a very like clear, defined list of things that we should be considering. And I think that you guys have scared me enough such that I know now what to consider ordering, at least in the acute setting, while we work up somebody, especially like in the middle of the night, if you got a consult about thermocytopenia. And, and Rona, bring, um, bring us home on that. What would you, now, now, after our discussion, what would you order if somebody came in with a platelet count of 40? So first and foremost, you need that smear to go ahead and look for schistocytes to, to rule out a lot of the scary things, looking for clump platelets. You also want to get a citrated platelet count in a blue top or a yellow top tube. You always want to repeat your CBC. You want to get some coags, fibrinogen, and you can also consider doing like a haptoglobin. You know, and then some of the things that you have a little bit of time for are your infectious etiologies, so hepatitis, serologies, HIV. And we also want to consider abdominal ultrasound or something, some sort of imaging modality if they haven't had one recently to kind of evaluate for splenomegaly um, or cirrhosis. That sound good? That's beautiful. That's awesome. That's beautiful. <laughs> well, that's that's certainly awesome, and uh, you know, I I I really appreciate you know kind of the overall framework that you guys have have posed. So, I, I if you if you would like, I can round out this case and kind of let you know what happened. Is that do you guys want to hear, or Let's do you want to leave it as a cliffhanger? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you know, ultimately, we had we had sent off a lot of the workup that you guys had suggested. In this gentleman's case, you know, he was started on IV antibiotics, and after a couple of days, his symptoms really seemed to improve. They were doing routine kind of follow up CBCs on a daily basis to evaluate for improvements. And luckily for him, uh, his platelet count did improve within a couple of days. At the time of discharge, he was up to about 150,000. So I think it's safe to say in this situation that it was likely related to the fact that he came in with his acute illness, with this pneumonia, and that was likely the, the culprit here. But, you know, I think that what we've highlighted here is just the importance of not hanging our hat on a diagnosis as soon as we see it. It's important to at least consider the things that are scary that may be also happening kind of at the same time, especially in someone that's sick enough to be in the hospital, and be very systematic in our approach such that we don't miss anything. And despite how common of a of a consult this may be, going through this mental exercise for every single patient is, you know, in each patient's best interest. Does that does that sound like a, a good kind of summary? Sounds like a way to wrap this thing up. Well, any last thoughts or anything like that? Otherwise, I think that we will call it a day. 